Heist at the Bank of the Black Ox. Written by Nels Chalamar. Chapter 1 Elizabeth P. Dickey shifted her attention between the clock, the door to her employer's office, and the man sitting across from her in the small anteroom of the bank's inner chambers. She did this in rounds, letting her eyes drift to the clock every minute on the minute. The clock showed 4.58, but the clock was slow. The man wore a tweed blazer with worn suede elbow pads and a red carnation stuck into the buttonhole on the lapel. Beneath the coat, he had on a gray flannel buttoned all the way up to the neck. The absence of a tie surprised Elizabeth, who had seen hundreds of applicants plead their case to Mr. H. in the twenty years she had been working for him. All of them had worn ties. It was simply what one did when one wanted a loan. The man caught her wandering gaze, and his mouth split into a toothy grin. Uh, it's, I, I think, oh, it sh- should, <clears throat> shouldn't be long now, she stammered. Elizabeth blushed. The man across from her exuded confidence. It seemed to leak from his pores. Elizabeth's feelings of intimidation and awe surprised her. Confidence was something she associated with the trappings of wealth, but if this man was wealthy, he neglected to show it. His trousers were frayed in places, and his boots were flecked with mud. With the exception of a carnation, nothing about him was decorative, and yet she still found herself feeling as though she were in the presence of a maharaja or a dean at some elite eastern university. He didn't speak, just nodded slowly and looked down at his hands resting in his lap. Elizabeth looked back up to the clock, five o'clock. She heard the muted clatter of the tellers closing and locking their registers, ushering the odd customer or two from the bank's main room, which took up roughly three-fourths of its total footprint. The remaining fourth was split between this anteroom, which was no wider than an omnibus and a fraction of the length, and Mr. H.'s well-appointed office. The room in which she and the stranger sat was just large enough for a small desk and two chairs. The room was windowless and stuffy from the heat of two breathing bodies. Elizabeth was a practical woman, rounding the corner on middle age and twenty years into the thirty-year mortgage on the boarding house she and her sister-in-law had opened after the untimely death of their husbands. Both Thomas Dickey and his brother Lewis had died when their freight train derailed just outside Ashland, spilling its heavy cargo and few passengers into a deep ravine. Elizabeth and Daisy had wasted no time in applying for a loan for Mr. H., who was, at that time, operating out of his home while his bank was under construction. Without their husbands, they needed their own source of revenue, and fast— so they used Mr. H.'s money to build a boarding house on their late husband's property. In a few days after the funeral, Daisy took the day shift at the boarding house and began working nights as a nurse at the sanatorium. Elizabeth looked over the accounts and paperwork of their business at night and worked by day for Mr. H., who had offered them favorable turns on their loan, provided Elizabeth enter his employ. Elizabeth knew that Mr. H. didn't really need a secretary. 
He had hired her simply to inflate his withering ego. A fastidious record-keeper with an almost maniacal attachment to having things done his way, he had a predictably explosive temper whenever he reviewed Elizabeth's work. He would retype all documents, reorganize his own calendar, and walk to the cafe himself to pick up his daily sandwich, having decided that for such important work no one but Mr. Warren G. Harding would do. About the only job that Elizabeth was allowed to do without direct supervision was to entertain visitors, until such a time as Mr. H. was ready to see them. The only thing that Mr. H. hated more than being interrupted in his work was when someone used his real name in conversation. A lifetime of mockery had made him adverse to the sound of it, and only initials would do. Explaining that, without embarrassing Mr. H., was Elizabeth's true purpose at the bank. Bullseye was a small town, so anyone applying for a loan already knew to call the banker Mr. H. Elizabeth's primary function was only needed when someone new moved to town, which was happening with less frequency these days, a development that made her fear for the maintenance of her boarding house. But Elizabeth felt that her mere presence provided a sense of accomplishment and victory for Mr. H. She was a piece of furniture, a fixture in the diorama that he had created to convince himself of his greatness, along with the antique compasses and astrolabs in his office and the bank of the Black Ox itself. Mr. H. had funded the construction of the enormous marble edifice, incongruous among the twenty-odd other brick-and-mortar buildings that composed the town. He had chased a spirit of adventure and brought his East Coast money all the way out to Oregon. He had taken that money and given it out like candy on Halloween to anyone who asked, and for a while, everyone was happy. Then everyone realized that they had to pay Mr. H. to live on the land that they were already living on before he moved to town. He owned them, and there was nothing they could do about it. Elizabeth had been attending to an impatient matron in the queue for the tellers when the stranger walked in. She had almost missed him as he walked through the door labeled office and made for the doors to Mr. H.'s chambers. She had chased after those swinging leather elbow pads, hissing, Stop! He had turned, flashed her that toothy grin, and addressed her casually. Is Mr. Harden in? he had asked. She had admitted that he he was, but that he was far too busy to meet today, and that the man would have to book an appointment and return tomorrow, or or perhaps the following day. No, I'm afraid that's not going to do, he said. See, I'm headed north tomorrow morning and won't be back for a while. I need to see Mr. Harden today. At this point, Elizabeth had explained that he really ought to refer to the bank's owner as Mr. H., Oh, right. Well, then, uh, will you kindly let Mr. H. know that I simply must speak with him today? Exasperated, she tried once again to explain that that was an impossibility, but he refused to leave. He stood there grinning at her until she took a seat, mumbling that maybe, just, just maybe, Mr. H. could squeeze him in at the close of business. They had passed the next 27 minutes in respectful silence. As the time wore on, she began to feel uneasy, as one does standing at the edge of a very high cliff. 
She sensed danger, but the man was evidently alone, unarmed, and even friendly. Nevertheless, she was spooked. Elizabeth P. Dickey, a practical woman, had been spooked. Chapter 2 Mr. H. crossed the T on the last word of the last sentence of his magnum opus autobiography. He shifted his elephantine weight back into his comfy leather chair and released a deep and melancholic sigh. The manuscript sat in a neat pile on the leather pad atop his oak writing desk. The desk had originally belonged to his father, the initials G.F.H., were engraved on a small brass plate, which caught the sunlight that spilled through the window behind his desk. Gerald Fairfield Harding had left many things to his only son. He had left him his desk and extensive library, the numerous cartographical and horological instruments that now adorn the shelves of Mr. H.'s office, the fortune that had allowed Mr. H. to transplant himself to a new state a new region, a new life, and the legacy that had prompted Mr. H. to do so. Gerald had circumnavigated the world on a sailboat. He had hunted big game on the plains of Africa and hung the taxidermied heads of rhinos, giraffes, and lions from the walls of his parlor. He had shaken hands with senators and presidents, pulling the strings from which the world hung, Gerald Fairfield Harding was a great man. Staring at the pages of his autobiography, which were covered in neat, minuscule script, Mr. H. thought back on the many hours spent writing. He remembered these hours fondly because they were hours spent thinking of his father. Fully two-thirds of his finished autobiography concerned the exploits of another man. Mr. H. loved his father, but the disparity between purpose and result in his book troubled him. He stood and turned to the window. His hands were clasped behind his back, his posture military straight, with the pronounced curve of his stomach a mere half inch from the warm window pane. In spite of his weight, Mr. H. was not known to sweat, not even under pressure, and his smart, Gray wool suit was bone dry, but his anxiety showed in the way he fingered the gold signet ring on his left pinky, spinning it and tracing the small ox emblazoned on the face with one of his neatly trimmed nails. He was remembering the night his father had given him the ring. Son, his father's voice echoed through the halls of their palatial house, followed by the sound of scurrying footsteps. The door to the parlor stood slightly ajar. The young Warren Harding heard the sound of a fire crackling within. Enter, his father called. He entered the warm enclosure of the room. The windows were shut and the high velvet curtains were drawn. A decanter and tumblers on a table by the door flashed with the flickering glow of the fire, as did the barrels and blades of the crossed rifles and swords on the walls. The expressions on the various animals' faces immortalized their rage. Flames flickered in their dead, black eyes. Gerald stood, leaning one strong, calloused hand against the mantel, 
his eyes downcast into the burning logs. The other hand was raised before him, gently cupping something small and precious. He wore a green velvet smoking jacket. His straight black hair dripped with perspiration. Mr. H. inherited his chronic desiccation from his mother, who was as pear-shaped and dour as her son eventually grew up to be. Gerald didn't turn as his son entered the room. Sit down. Warren took a seat in one of the two armchairs that were positioned perpendicular to the fireplace. He looked up at the angular jaw and piercing, troubled eyes of his father's profile. What do you see? Gerald asked. I'm, I'm sorry, sir? Warren stammered, unsure whether his father's question had been rhetorical. I know you are looking at me. I'm asking you what you see. Warren thought for a moment, wondering if this question, like so many of his father's questions, was a trap, a test of his intelligence, wit, or independence. It was hard to tell, but his father usually sat facing him when he laid such a trap, grinning with mocking bemusement. Standing in front of the fire, his father looked serious, determined. I see a great man. Gerald shook his head slowly. When he spoke, words trickled from his mouth. No, what you see is a father, and one who has failed his boy. Warren sat up to interject, but his father turned and held up a hand. Settling into the chair opposite his son, Gerald continued, I know that it is hard for you to see me as a failure, You look up to me, and how could you not? I have regaled you with stories of my adventures and exploits since before you could understand my words. Gerald nodded at his son's conspicuous silence. You are probably thinking of one of these stories now, holding it up as evidence of my success, of my greatness. Gerald sighed and revealed the thing he had been holding in his hand. It was his signet ring a fat gold band emblazoned with the Harding family crest, a sturdy ox trotting beneath the motto, Prudens qui fortis. But the truth, Gerald said, avoiding eye contact with his son, the truth is that none of that makes a lick of difference. Not one of the things that I have told you about my life proves that I am anything more than a father who has failed his son. Because by telling you all of it, I have instilled in you the idea that in order to be a great man, one has to have adventures. When, in truth, greatness is measured not by the stories we tell, but by the pride we take in our lives and the things we leave behind. Gerald stopped his mouth twitching from the burden of expressing himself. Warren watched the pedestal upon which he had placed his father wobble. But father, he cried, are you not proud? Are are you not proud of, of this? He waved his arms, gesturing to the walls of the cavernous room in which they sat. Are you not proud of your life, the things you've done? Bah, Gerald spat. Knickknacks and monuments to my vanity, that is all it is. There's no substance 
Real pride is not in the ownership of things, but in the recognition that some things can never be owned. Gerald held the ring out to his son, stretching his long, velvet-clad arm across the distance between them. I'm giving this to you, Gerald said. And before you say that you couldn't possibly, I want you to be quiet and listen. I'm giving this to you to remind you that the most important things are the things we pass on. Your name, for example. I named you after a good friend, a great man, because I wanted you, too, to be a great man. Because until you become a great man, I won't be one. Warren took his father's ring without another word, fitting it onto his left pinky, where it had remained until the day in question, the day Mr. H. finished his autobiography and stood at the window, staring out at the town he had come to own. He never fully understood his father's speech, but had made it his mission to become a great man so that his father could be one as well. Thinking of the mammoth stack of papers behind him in which Mr. H. was little more than a footnote, he began to grow worried that he had failed his father. It was at that moment, just as he was turning from the window to tidy his desk in preparation of close of business, that there came a knock at the door. Elizabeth opened it a crack and stuck her head in. Someone to see you, sir, about a loan. I don't take applicants after four, you know that. Tell him to go away. Yes, sir, I know, but he's very insistent. Tell me, Elizabeth, Mr. H. said, cocking his head, why do I pay you if you are incapable of doing your job properly? Elizabeth's stern, homely face tightened into a grimace. She said nothing. Well, I suppose you may as well send him in. I will take care of this gentleman just like I take care of everything else around here. Elizabeth remained mute in the doorway. Send him in, Mr. H. repeated. Yes, sir. Oh, and Elizabeth, Mr. H. called, her head returned. Stick around, if you would, until our guest leaves. She hesitated. Is there a problem? he asked. No, well, not really. Daisy has to leave soon for the hospital, and I had hoped to be home before she does so that the house doesn't go unsupervised. Well, you should have thought of that before you allowed someone to make an appointment. It's not my fault that your sister-in-law has to go to her job at the loony bin, nor is it my fault... That you can't follow simple instructions, is it? No, sir, I, I guess it isn't. You guess? No, I mean you're right. I should have been more firm with him, Elizabeth admitted. Firmer. And yes, you should have. They stared at each other for a moment. That will be all, he said. Send him in. Elizabeth closed the door. Mr. H. heard the sound of murmuring voices as he slipped his manuscript into the lowest drawer in his desk, 
locking it shut with a large brass key. As he sat back up in his chair, the door to his office opened, revealing a thin man of medium height in a tweed blazer and dirty slacks with a red carnation tucked into his lapel. Mr. H., I presume, the man said, stepping into the room and closing the door behind him. Chapter 3 Benjamin Murphy faced Mr. H. across the spacious office. Neither man smiled. Two pairs of eyes narrowed in a joint attempt to size up the other. Mr. H. saw a man without a tie. Under normal circumstances, the absence of this particular accessory would have provoked his ire. A snappy dresser himself, Mr. H. was adamant that the people with whom he interacted share his sartorial values, especially in a business setting which this was. But there was something else about this man. Standing in his mud-stained boots on the spotless hardwood floor of the office, seven minutes after the close of business, there was something that gave Mr. H. pause that made him reconsider the exclusively transactional mentality he had decided to adopt for this interaction. One might even have gone so far as to say that he was spooked, though he would never have admitted as much himself. Benjamin Murphy saw an inflatable man. Mr. H. sat in a large leather chair behind the desk. His arms were crossed over his tremendous belly, and his head was lowered so that his neck was invisible beneath a triple-cheeked chin. His eyes sparkled through slit lids. Benjamin guessed that the look was designed to be intimidating, but it came across comically so. The expression was of exaggerated disappointment, as though Mr. H. were in the process of scolding a child. Possibly one of the six adolescent girls that surrounded him and a woman who may as well have been a feminine carbon copy of him in a small framed photo on his desk. All eight members of the family were dressed in spotless white, a color incongruous with the grim expressions staining their faces. Benjamin fought not to feel sorry for the man across from him. Take a seat, please. Mr. H. gestured to a chair on the far side of the desk, unwrapping his arms and then bringing his hands back together so he could turn the ring around his pinky. The ring made two revolutions in the time that it took for Benjamin to take a seat. Thank you, Benjamin said. You've got quite the place here. Mr. H. smiled the bureaucratic kind of smile that screams thank you between whispers of get to the point, and get out. Right, Benjamin said. He looked down at his lap as he scooted the chair forward a few inches. Mr. H.'s smile dripped into a grimace as the dull rolling sound of lacquered wood against lacquered wood brought up images of scuffs and, worse still, grooves forming in his precious floor. Well, I can see you're a busy man. Don't want to take up any more of your time than I have to. I guess... I should tell you why I'm here. That's usually the best place to start, Mr. H said, cocking his head and exhaling deeply. I am here for a loan, but not, I assume, the kind that you're used to. What kind would that be, Mr. 
Uh, Mr. H asked. Murphy, Benjamin offered, nodding. And I figure you're used to dealing with your run-of-the-mill mortgage or auto loan, am I right? Mr. H nodded, then maneuvered his head into a side-to-side bob. Not necessarily, he said. I'm happy to provide loans for any purpose, as long as it's a safe investment, of course. Of course, Benjamin agreed. What do you intend to purchase? Benjamin looked down again. He muttered, apparently negotiating an argument between two or maybe three parts of himself. Mr. H. leaned forward in his chair. Benjamin's eyes flitted back up. Tools! Mr. H. was visibly disappointed with the banality of the request. Tools? Tools! Benjamin repeated. What manner of tools? Combine harvester and irrigation pipe? Chainsaws and trucks? Dynamite and cement? What do you intend to make with them, Mr. Murphy? It's not something I intend to make, Mr. Harding. It's something that I intend to take. The ticking of the clock in the office's anteroom sounded slightly, accompanied by Elizabeth's soft shuffle and bustle. For a moment, Mr. H. considered marching out his door up to her desk and firing her on the spot. So enraged was he at her inability to do anything according to his wishes. But he was rooted to his chair by curiosity. The afternoon had taken on the character of a dream, and, as in every dream he had ever had, he simply had to know more. And what is it you intend to take? Mr. H. asked, to which Benjamin became immediately cagey, looking down once again at his lap and engaging himself in another internal argument. Mr. H. soon grew weary of his companion's reticence. In a tangential approach towards removing the man from his office, he said, You are aware that I cannot sign off on a loan if the funds are to be put towards illegal means. Phrased not as a question but as a statement, another of those little bureaucratic techniques that reads in multiple ways, depending on how versed the listener is to that kind of language. Well, see, that that's just it, Benjamin answered. My partner and I have our sights on something that is free for the taking, so long as we can find it. And where is your partner this evening? Train station. He's getting the ticket squared away while I deal with the loan. Benjamin's operative time frame suddenly dawned on Mr. H. Tickets? When are you leaving? Tonight. Overnight to Seattle leaves at 10, and we intend to be on it. Mr. H leaned back in his chair, confident now in his ability to control the situation. He would refuse this imbecilic request, deny this Mr. Murphy any chance at rebuttal or appeal, and then call Elizabeth into the room, which would not only serve as Murphy's de facto dismissal, but also would allow Mr. H to deliver to her the tongue-lashing that she verily deserved for failing to do her one and only job. Then he would return home to a dinner table already set, and silently populated by his wife and daughters. 
Mr. Murphy, it gives me no pleasure to inform you. But before he could finish, Benjamin interrupted him. Aw, hell, that sounds like every other no I've ever heard. Were you really expecting a yes? To begin with, your lack of specificity in this request has left me in near total darkness as to the means and end of whatever it is you plan to do. Additionally, I cannot extend you a loan, knowing that you are preparing to leave the state. Not only are there documents to write up and sign, but also, without some form of collateral or oversight, I would have no way of ensuring your return, let alone your repayment on the loan. There is simply too much risk involved in the situation. Oversight, Benjamin whispered, letting his eyes wander the shelves, which were stuffed with instruments of adventure. Compasses, sextons, rifles, and swords, none of which had ever felt the puffy dryness of Mr. H.'s hands. Benjamin's eyes stopped on an antique silver box sitting by itself on one of the higher shelves. He returned his gaze to the large man across from him. Let me ask you a question then, Mr. H. Mr. H perked up at the sound of his preferred name. What do you know about stamps? Heist at the Bank of the Black Ox. Written by Nels Chalamar. Produced by Jesse Rosenthal. Chapter 1, read by Barbara Deering. 2, by Tom Chalinor. And 3, by Matt Eldridge. <laughs>